Our sermon lesson this morning uh, is going to come from James chapter 2, and we're going to be in James throughout the series this month, and even though we begin in James chapter 2, we'll get back to chapter 1 in two weeks. Um, so our reading this morning, it starts at James chapter 2, and we'll actually begin just one verse prior in chapter 1, verse 27. James will be the basis for our sermon this morning. He writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole, for he who said you at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of our God. Would you pray? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. He is risen. Ooh, that's not bad. Hallelujah. I am going to be honest. I was expecting perhaps not that much enthusiasm this morning. And, may, and maybe it's just me. Um, maybe if you're, if you're anything like me at all, you were a little bit more prepared to say that last weekend. Maybe you're a little more pumped to get to say it last weekend. I don't know, am I the only one alone in that? Well, if you're anything like me, um, again, we're a little tired this week, the week after Easter. Um, 
the morning after Easter, the morning after our weekend of our live tomb events, um, at about 8.30, my, my wife took a picture of me and she told me not to show it to all of you this morning because she said it would kind of embarrass, embarrass me. Um, but I got it anyways and I want to show it to you this morning. Is that all right? Um, well, actually, don't worry. It's actually a before and after picture of me and some of my pastor friends before Easter and after Easter, okay? Take a look. All right, so it's not actually me. The, the picture was kind of embarrassing, the real one. Um, let's see, got up in the morning, got my son dressed, made breakfast, had a family breakfast, played with him on the floor, and I think it was about 8.30 in the morning on Monday morning. When Julian went back to bed, I was ready to go back to bed too. It makes sense, right? Um, Easter is kind of, it's the high point for a lot of people's religious church year, right? Um, they're a big deal. It'd be Good Friday and Easter, the most holy days in, in all of Christianity. They're a big deal. And, and here at the Way Church, we, we did it pretty big this year too, right? I mean, I can't really quantify this for sure, but I would suspect that there were more man and woman hours put into preparing for our live tomb events during the months of, let's see, February and March than maybe all of June, July, August, and September to get us ready to actually open as a church. I mean, musicians rehearsed a bunch to get ready for that weekend. Organizers for that event met often. People got supplies to make food, to make crosses and tombs. People took time to build the tomb. People took time to make all of those little crosses that you got. Actors got together, got fitted for costumes, practiced. People prepared for costumes as well. Yeah, there was a lot to do. And so, I mean, if anything, this group deserves to be a little tired, right? It's, it's only natural, right? When we get tired physically, it makes sense and it's even good to, to step back and rest, right? When you get tired mentally and emotionally, it's okay and even healthy to step back and check out a little bit, right? But what about spiritually? When you're feeling sluggish or slow, or lazy spiritually, is it okay to take a break? To stop exercising your faith for a little bit? Say, you know what? I did the whole Easter thing. I confessed Jesus. I even saw Jesus this Good Friday and Easter. And everyone knows I'm a Christian. So it's okay if I stop doing faith things for a little bit. What do you think? Is that all right? Well, this morning we're going to start a series that is going to study the book of James. And the book of James is actually a letter, a letter that this guy named to confess Christianity and yet not actually act out Christianity. You know, what's interesting about the people that James wrote to is that they are Christians. They are Jewish people who had converted to Christianity and there was seemingly nothing wrong with them. I mean, James is not prompted to write this letter that he writes because the people that he's writing to are steeped in false doctrine and there's, and there's false teachers coming into their church and trying to lead them astray. And that's, that's not why he wrote this book. James didn't write this book because they're living in gross outward sin and incest or sexual immorality like some books of the Bible are written to people like that. There's nothing 
like that that prompts James to write this letter. In fact, there's nothing wrong with the outward appearance of what's going on. In fact, there's nothing really going on in the outward as it is. And that's the problem. He's writing to a group of people who claimed Christianity but did nothing to show fruits of Christianity. Nothing to show that their lives matched faith that they confessed by word. And so if you get one thing, one thing about what James's main point is throughout the book, it's this. If you're following along on the sermon guide, here it is. This is James' main point, is that real faith, real faith in Christ produces real works. Real faith produces real works. You can't claim to be a Christian if you don't live like a Christian, doing Christian things. And yet, people forgot. People forgot this. They, they were content with all of the outward looking fine, but what they forgot is that on the inside, there was a war being waged. There was a war going on inside at Tempsos to be lazy, to rest on our laurels spiritually. To say, hey, it's enough that people know I'm a Christian. To not really worry about what I do in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, and in my attitudes. And that's what James is going to go straight for, is for that idea. And attack that. The idea that you can somehow be a Christian without being in that Christian fight. Without fighting against the self. That would rather sit back and not do things that our God requires of us. And perhaps James is one of the most qualified to talk to about this against us because he knows one thing for sure. While this is a war that is fought against ourselves, it's not a war that we're fighting, fighting by ourselves. It's a war fought with the Lord right by our sides because James, James grew up. And he knew Jesus. He knew him rather well, actually. And yet he didn't follow Christ. He actually um, caused problems for Christ's ministry. You see, James and Jesus were half-brothers. They shared the same mother, Mary. Now, James wasn't a believer until one day his half-brother showed up and appeared to him as the resurrected Lord, and it changed him. It changed his life completely. And now the one who used to just claim to be a believer in God and not really do much about it, now followed the Christ and put his faith into actions and was a part of starting the faith movement known as Christianity. James is now known as what might have been like the bishop of all of Jerusalem, the, the seat of where Christianity started. And our series this morning is going to start by looking at his letter. I mentioned before we're in James chapter 2 this morning. And we begin with this. James said this. He said, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
but say to the poor man, ah, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's a scenario. You're out sipping coffee with some of your friends before church starts and you see a car pull up. Because how could you not see this car pull up? It's a Rolls Royce. And out steps a man wearing a, a William uh, Fivernati Italian suit and his Rolex watch catches the sun and you watch him come walking in and you think he's here to see a movie because that happens, but no, he's actually here to come to your church and he wants to know where to sit and so you show him. You walk right in and you say, hey, here are the seats that I saved for my family, but why don't you take one of them? And no sooner has his Clive Christian cologne left the scent of your nose when all of a sudden you smell a smell tumbles in. You really didn't smell. Another guy kind of stumbles in. And he's got more stains on his shirt than you can count or you care to know about. He looks like he's never been washed and you're sure his clothes never have. And all you do is stop, nod, and then not again and pray that he sits not near you or your family so you don't have to smell that. Well, James has something to say about this scenario. He says, your faith, your religion, it's not right. It's not acceptable to God. Favoritism, showing favoritism to others in thought or in deed, it's not right. It's a sin. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. God's word is clear. Favoritism, showing preferential treatment to other people from other people is a sin. It's a sin. And he goes on to say, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, the world judges people. People judge people. And in fact, research says that, that our brains are so good at judging people. It happens so fast that we don't even know we do it sometimes. It's almost like a reaction. This past week as I was preparing for this lesson and, and thinking about that idea of, of judging other people, of showing favoritism, I sat down and I said, all right, it's easy to judge people. What do I judge people on? What do, what do we judge people on? And I said, I'm going to take a minute to write down as many different things, criteria, standards of judgment as I can think of. Well, I went past a minute because I, I was on a roll. And in less than three minutes, though, I came up with a list of 36 different criteria or standards by which people judge people. Take a look. It's on page seven in your worship guide that you came in. And you might think I'm nuts, but I'm going to read this list quickly. I'm going to tell you why later. I'm going to tell you why. Listen, these are, these are criteria by which people judge other people. They do it based on gender. Age, money, possessions, power, looks, physical abilities or disabilities, clothing, sexual orientation, marital status, sports fandom, career, education, intelligence, competence, common sense, correctness of speech, correctness of, of uh, communication style, religious belief, denominational standing, hobbies, ethnicity, hometown, skin color, parenting style, political views, liberal or conservative ideology, cleanliness, messiness, personality, or me, of humor or the lack thereof, your attitude or warmness towards you 
or me, choice of food or drink, musical style. You know, here's just one reason why I listed all of those and read them all out. Not only is the judgment and the favoritism that we show other people, well, a sin and wrong, the multiplicity of ways in which we do it, it's deep and it's dark. And God calls it a sin, a sin that he's serious about. And here's just an example um, to show you maybe how easily it happens. I wrote this list on Wednesday morning. Friday afternoon, my family went to the zoo. Saturday morning, I looked back at this list again, and, and I was struck. As I thought about people watching, which is something I enjoy doing in crowded areas, and thought was just this casual thing, and, and I thought about the uh, casual encounter that I had with the gentleman wearing a Packers sweatshirt that I said, what's up to, or the family from Wisconsin I talked to. I also thought about that mom of three that was pushing her stroller next to me and cut off my stroller. I thought about the thoughts that I had towards her and her friend and the way they were talking to each other when she did that. I thought about the thoughts that I had when I looked at her one-year-old eating a bag of cotton candy and thought, oh, I'd never feed that to my kid. And all of a sudden, my casual people watching that afternoon as I thought about other people that I looked at, it wasn't that. It was evil thoughts. It was judgment. And the consequences... They're much more serious than feeling a little bad about an afternoon at a zoo. Listen, James continues, verse 8. He says, If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you keep the royal law, the golden rule, to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says good. Good on you for keeping the law, for fulfilling the law. And yet you are a lawbreaker. You are convicted as a lawbreaker if at just one point you take just one of those 36 listed things and you judge. You show favoritism. James is saying, listen, listen, if you're someone that never misses a good way to fulfill the law. If you're someone that never abuses alcohol and never smokes something that you shouldn't, way to go. Way to fulfill the law. If you're someone that never speeds and is careful to obey all of the pedestrian laws, good, way to keep the law. If you're someone that always shows respect to your teacher and your parents, good. Good for you, way to fulfill the law. But at just one point, if you look at someone who's not the same age as you, and you treat them differently. If at just one point you look at someone who you know is of the different political persuasion than you and you say, yeah, I'm not going to share Jesus with that person. If just once you look at someone that has clothes or maybe a hairdo that isn't 
you. You're guilty of breaking all of it. You're guilty of breaking the entire law. He says at just one point, if you do that, you sin. If your preferences, and we have preferences, right? Everyone has preferences. If those preferences turn into prejudices, it's sin. And discrimination, well, that leads to damnation. You know, we might not think that it's that big of a deal, right? Like there's bigger deals out there. There's murder, there's adultery. But think about this. If you sat on a jury and there was a man who admitted admitted to murdering multiple people and he said, hey, I'm sorry, I committed murder, but I tell you what, I've never cheated on my wife. Could you let that person go? No. No, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. If you were to go home and on your way home speed down the highway going 90 and a 55 and the police officer pulls you over, could you say to him, hey, listen, I know I was speeding, but I just went to church. I observed the Sabbath day. No, he would laugh at you. Because if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And this is a point that is a big deal to God. To not show favoritism. To not treat other people differently in your thoughts or in your actions. And he says if you do, if you discriminate against them, it's damnation. You can't pick and choose parts of scripture. And speaking of picking or choosing parts of scripture. A gentleman named Jim Wallace lives in the D.C. area. He's an internationally known writer and Christian activist. And before he became that, before he became an advisor to presidents, he and some buddies in seminary sat down and they picked and chose parts of scripture to cut out. Specifically, they picked out all of the parts about poor people. They picked out all of the parts about poverty. And they ended up with something that looks a little bit like this. An unholy, holy Bible. You see, in over 2,000 different scripture passages and references throughout scripture, God speaks about how people are to care for the poor. He speaks about how he loves the poor and how we are who are loved by him to love as well. And yet, if you pick out passages, if you pick out parts of scripture that you want to follow, it would be picking out parts of scripture like this one from James, which says, what good is it then, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, it's dead. If you see someone who doesn't have enough food, doesn't have the right clothes for the weather, and you say, hey, thinking about you. I'm praying for you. James is blunt. He says, your faith, it's dead. Your faith is fake. It's phony. 
I mean, think about it. If a husband or a wife was at home and the other spouse was, was doing everything, doing all the work and, and they were doing none of it, just sitting around on the couch and they were busy cleaning, making meals, taking care of the kids and they said to their spouse who was sitting there doing nothing, can you help me? And that spouse said, hey, I tell you what, because I love you, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna pray for you. Could you really say that that spouse loves the other one? No, that's not showing love. That's not truly loving someone. And this is something that's hard to get used to, but you have to appreciate about James. He's straight to the point. And he says, you cannot be a believer if you don't show benevolence towards people you think are bums. You cannot claim Christian faith if you do not take care of the poor. You can't say you love Jesus if you don't love the people, the poor people that Jesus loves. And the reason why James can be so blunt, he can be so straightforward about this truth, is because he knows that we have a God who loves, well, moldy shoes. Let me explain this is a pair of Puma's, Puma sneakers that I own that I really love. This shoe right here is a shoe that I bought seven years ago. And I don't know if you can see it from where you're seated, but seven years of wearing this shoe, I've kept them looking pretty fresh, pretty clean, right? I've only worn them on special occasions. And when they get dirty, you want to know what I do right away? I wash them. I wash them right away. And I lost these shoes last summer when my wife and I moved across town. I was kind of bummed out about it, but doing some spring cleaning, I found them this week and I was pumped. But my gladness soon turned to some sadness because you see, I opened them up in a plastic bag and I immediately remembered why they were in the plastic bag because I washed them right before we moved. We didn't have time to let them dry and so I just put them right in the bag thinking I'm gonna take them out, let them air dry when we get to our new house just five minutes away, but I didn't. And I opened it up and it smelled kind of funny. And so I took out the soles and inside of the shoes were disgusting, atrocious mold growing inside of both shoes underneath the sole. That's kind of how we are. We as people we love to judge the outside. We love to look on the outside and see it looks clean. We love to keep up the clean appearance, right? But we have a God who doesn't judge the things that men and women judge. He judges the heart. And what that means is that he sees the inside. He sees that we're not holy, we're moldy. He sees we're different from us. And yet, our God looked on the inside, and he said, the shoe doesn't fit, but I'll wear it. And he sent his son. He sent his son to step into our shoes, to walk a, a mile and, and more than that in our shoes and really go to a place where we couldn't go, to walk a perfect life that we couldn't walk, to walk to a place we couldn't go and die a death that we couldn't, to pay for sins that we couldn't. And because of that, he says, I've made you clean. I've made you moldy men and women, not moldy, but holy 
men and women because that is the God he is. And this is how James puts it. James puts it like this. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? You see, scripture's clear. All of us are equally sinful on the inside. There's no one who does righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, despite the fact that every single person is all equally sinful on the inside, all of us are equally saved by the same Savior. The same Savior who came and made us all rich in faith. No matter if you are wearing Louis Vuitton or Reeboks, Reeboks that you found on the street and have holes in the toes, it doesn't matter what you wear, it doesn't matter what you make, it doesn't matter what economic status you have, all people are equal in the sight of God, equally sinful and equally saved by the precious blood of Christ. You know, oftentimes when consideration is given from, from the upper class or middle class, whether they should help the lower class, thoughts go like this. They go, well, we could help, but there's programs for that. Or we could, we could help them out, but, you know, they made some pretty poor decisions to get to the place where they're at. They didn't work hard in school. They don't work hard at their jobs. That's why they don't have one. And, you know, I tell you what, I could give them some means to help them out, but they probably blow it on alcohol and drugs, so I'll do nothing. And yet, imagine if our God had that logic. Imagine if he said, you know, I'm going to make them show that they can work hard first. I'm going to make them, make them earn it. Yeah, they've made some bad decisions, so, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to give them goodness and grace because, you know, they might blow it on the spiritual equivalency of, of drugs and alcohol. But he didn't. He showed mercy. He showed not judgment, not condemnation, and certainly not an ounce of discrimination, but he showed mercy and he showed love. And now, because we have been loved, by him, we can love others. And that's what James is telling us, is that you can love your, and you can fill in whatever blank you want, your poor neighbor, because God loved you first. That's why we can do this. Because he first loved us, now we can love as well. And that means something. It means that we have a good and gracious God. It also means that we have responsibility as Christians, as followers of Christ, who know his love. You see, once upon a time, there was a man who, who did rather well for himself. He was rich. He had quite an estate, and yet he never married, and so he had, he had no children. As he was approaching the end of his life, he thought about who he would will his entire estate to, and he was almost certain, almost sure, that it was going to be his favorite nephew, a nephew he was really, really close to throughout his life. From the time he was young, he always visited, and even as an adult, he came by every Saturday. He would run groceries and other errands um, for his uncle as he got older, and he always called, and yet he wondered about him. He wondered if all of this goodness was to get something from him or because that's the guy he was. So this uncle, he dressed up. He dressed up as a, as a homeless man and, and sat outside his nephew's home. 
And in the morning, he just ignored him. The uncle raced to the place of his work and sat outside and it got worse. He, he looked at him sitting next to all the other people who were homeless and he just kind of snugged his nose at him. Then he went home again, sat outside his nephew's home and on the way back, it got even worse. He told him to leave. He yelled at him. He cursed at him. He threatened to call the police and, and he found out that he left his faith at home and he didn't really love him he just loved the idea of getting something from him. And you see, we still have not a rich uncle, but we have a Jesus. We have a Savior who, who is rich in glory and majesty and, and everything else, and he loves to dress up. Our gospel lesson for today told us. It told us he dresses up as prisoners and homeless people, as sick people and, and everything else of people that are in distress and because we know that, we now know that we need to help, to show that love to them. Because whatever you do to show love to people who can give you nothing, it's really showing love to the one who's already given you everything. So if you haven't thought about it already, as we start out this sermon series, may the Lord be with you, and we talk about him being with us in our thoughts, what do you think? What do you think you can, we can, give? Well, let, me, let me put it this way. What would it look like for the way church to think about other people the way our God, our Savior, thinks about us? What would it look like for people who know how much they have already inherited by grace through faith? What would it look like for people who know the forgiveness, who know the eternity they have stored up to the, for them because of a good and gracious God who has given it freely? What would it look like for those people who on top of all of that have been given so much goodness and blessing physically? What would it look like for us to give? As you think about that, I want to tell you, this past week, there's a gentleman who saw us out in the market square last weekend who, who approached me, and he wanted me to help him out to pay for some rent. And I told him I couldn't do that, and, and what I did is I did what we normally have set in place to do here at, here at The Way, and that's give gift cards to the nearest grocery store to help him out with a week or so of groceries, and so I did that. And while, while that's not a bad reaction or a wrong reaction, and I hope it's a blessing to him and his wife, I wonder if that's kind of the typical reaction that people have after reading James. You read the book of James and it says to do, do things for those who have less. And so maybe you put a few more fives, tens, or even twenties in your wallet. And when you see people on the side of the road, you give them to them. But I would suggest that that merely, well, giving our money isn't, isn't good enough. It's too easy. You see, if we're serious about, about demonstrating real faith that, that produces real work, if we're serious about really thinking about others the way that our God thinks about us, I would suggest it's going to cost more than our money. It's going to cost our time. 
You see, we didn't have a God who just simply swiped his uh, salvation credit card and, and cashed in on his omnipotence to free us from our sins. But we have a God, we have a God who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, who saved us by coming and leaving heaven to be with us. And that is how he gave us all the blessings, all the righteousness that we have. That's why I'm excited to announce this. Normally, we save it for announcement time, and I was even going to wait till May to announce this. But as some of you know, every single trimester, three times a year, every four months, the Way Church partners up with a nonprofit of the trimester, um, a, a nonprofit organization here in the Fredericksburg community to serve alongside of them in the community to the people that God has planted us among. And coming up in May, we're going to partner with a group called the 516 Project. The 516 Project is a group of coordinated volunteers that get together and they help poor people or people who have physical disabilities with their home. They help them do big projects or small projects that, that they can't do. And, and here's how we're going to partner up with 516 Project. On May 19th, they have their big project workday where they try to tackle a lot of different projects that, that people in need have really kind of had building over the course of the winter. And we're going to encourage every single person that's a part of our church or a friend of our church to join us in volunteering for them. And it doesn't matter what your skill set is, if you can put a roof on or, or build a wheelchair ramp or just stand there with a rake or make sandwiches, people, people need that help on that day. And we pray that it doesn't stop there because we're also going to encourage all of our life groups for the next trimester to think about how they can, in an ongoing way, partner with 516 Project for, for some smaller projects that they have going on. We're going to encourage all of our life groups to think about how they can spend more time. More time really being with people. Because if we're serious about letting our light shine before people that they might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven, it's going to mean that we actually really have to be before people. And I hope it doesn't just stop with the 516 Project. I mean, what if, what if the way church set up a team, just like in, in the beginning of Acts, so that the ministry of the word could go on, a team of people was set up to care for widows and orphans and poor people. What if we, what if we had a good Samaritan team here? So that when, when people, men and women, come to me and say, Pastor, can you give me this or give me that? It's not just gift cards, but we see that they have groceries, yeah, maybe for the week, but also they know where else to get groceries in town from all the different food shelters in town. And, and what if we saw that, that this pregnant lady also had the, the medical means to, to have a healthy pregnancy? What if we had a team that, that saw to it that we had maybe grace bags or, or things in all of our cars that whenever we did drive past someone who needed something, we did have something to give them? What if our leaders set up a, a line item in our budget, uh, a line item specifically to be able to help people who are poor, a, a specific offering that, that we could give to? I mean, do you know what it would look like if if all of us gave just 1% of our income to a fund like that? 
If the 25 or 30 families that are here this morning all gave 1% of the average medium income in this area of the world, this small church would have over $16,000 to go really be with people, be with them in real ways, show real faith that produces real work and points people to their real savior that really, really loves them. What would it look like if the way church started to think about people the way our Savior thinks about us. Something to put on your thoughts. How many of you heard the story of Sarah Dobbins that took place well, just last Sunday? Sarah Dobbins was a mother. Did anyone hear about what she did on Easter morning? Maybe to some extent, but I hope not totally, um, parents here could probably relate to her. You see, Sarah went in to wake her 17-year-old son up for Easter church to try to get him going in the morning. And she heard her son keep hitting the snooze and she, he heard him moan, Mom, I'm going back to bed. Just give me five more minutes. And so Sarah left the room, came back with a taser and tased her son in the leg, shocked him to get him up and get him going to church. It's kind of funny. It's kind of bizarre when you hear about it. And it's not a good situation because Sarah's now facing, well, child abuse charges. And I was reading this story and I was thinking about it during the week and thinking about the book of James. I think, you know, as much as maybe parents can relate to trying to wake kids up for church, I think we can all relate to that son. We all have a serious streak of sluggishness, spiritual laziness in us that would rather just lay in bed and claim to be Christians than actually get up, to actually stand up and do Christian things. And the book of James, if it hasn't already today, over the course of the next three weeks, it's going to shock you. And I hope it does. I hope as we look at God's word and what it says about the nature of faith and the nature of the Lord really being with us, it's going to shock us. And I hope that it does shock some of you and get you to stop slumbering and stand up. And I can say that. I can say that. Because, you see, when God's word shocks us, it, it doesn't cause pain. In fact, quite, quite the opposite. When we, when we encounter God's word, as it's read, or in sermons, or in the sacraments, or in songs, God's word doesn't cause pain. It does the opposite. It heals. Because it tells the shocking story of a king who left his throne in heaven, who took on flesh, and though he was rich, made himself poor for your sake. A king who came and wasn't born in a palace and didn't sleep on fine Egyptian linens, but he slept on straw. And I wonder if that first night that the straw poked him, he thought about the crown he set aside. The crown of gold. And he looked ahead and he thought about the crown of thorns that he would wear as he took away the pain and the shame for you. See, it's the shocking story of a God who came with us and ate not on fancy place or in fancy places, but ate next to really, really bad people so that people like you and I might eat with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We have a God who was homeless and made sure to point it out to us that the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head, 
so that you and I would never know homelessness, not in this life and certainly not in the next to come. For he has prepared a mansion for you and I. We have a God who came to be with us, the Lord with you. And so when we say that saying, may the Lord be with you, it's not a pious wish in the sky, but it is a guarantee that the war on self doesn't have to be scary because the Lord who is there on Calvary is here with you now. The Lord is with you in your thoughts. May God bless you as you continue to fight that battle with him this week. Amen.